Let's bring in Dave Festick from the Toronto Star. Uh, Dave, welcome in. How are you today, sir? Mr. Taddy, great to hear your voice. Doing great. What is the what is the definition of success for the Maple Leafs this season, Jim? I think it, yeah. it's the lowest possible bar. Win around. Forget the cup. Forget anything beyond the first round of the playoffs. You got to win four playoff games. That is that is the be all and end all right now because they've set the bar that low. Yeah, well, absolutely. So, so anything. I mean, it's not not hard to improve on it, but but at some point, I mean, you know, I guess we're looking at you know what would what would retain employment for a lot of people, and that includes the players. But but having said that, I, I find this this story to be somewhat intriguing because whether you win the cup or not, there's built-in roster transition. Anyway, I just I guess if if you disappoint, the roster transition happens faster than than normal. So how do you read all of that? Yeah, look, I, I don't doubt for a second that when you listen to Kyle Dubas talk about the coming season and frame it in sort of a last dance kind of uh, context, and when you, you know, you just talk to anybody that's connected to this team, yeah, th- there's, a, there's an absolute desperation here, Jim. Like, there's a feeling that the status quo, as much as we're, you know, the status quo is what they're going with this year. We heard Brendan Shanahan defend the core of this team at the end of last year's collapse against the Montreal Canadiens, and we heard him say, we will get this done, this group will get this done. Um, but there's nobody's under any illusion that that kind of uh, a spin is going to work again if this team, A, fails to make the playoffs, which would be the most disastrous, obviously, outcome of a season like this, or B, fails to win a round. Uh, there's, that, that will not be a possible explanation right there's no way that stay the course will be a message that will be accepted by the fan base a but forget the fan base i really of the belief that that the stay the course mantra that that brennan shanahan you know i think successfully relayed in the in the wake of that massive disappointment against the canadians he won't be able to pull that trick again jim there's going to have to be big changes if indeed this team does not live up to the expectation of winning around so yeah, what what would those changes be? Well, I would I would say it would have to be the trading of what are the one of the members of the core for. I think it would have to be in some ways there would have to be a management shakeup. I think I, I don't think you could go on with the management team as it is. Uh, you know, if you couldn't win a playoff round uh, at the end of all this, so I, I think a lot looms over this team. There's a ton of pressure to make it happen now. And as much as Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews will, you know, meet with the media and tell them that they don't necessarily feel that pressure to win now, uh, because they're still in their early 20s and they've still got long careers ahead of them, which is true. You know, there are other people in this organization who clearly do not feel the same way, and I think rightly. You know, this is uh, the, the clip. I don't know if you heard MJ's clip on Overdrive yesterday about how long Matthews and Marner need to apologize for. I mean, this this whole this regular season thing is almost suspended animation. I mean, you know, you're going to be down there. I'm going to be covering the games, and they're going to say stuff after each game. I just wonder, you know, if you somehow have to put it all in perspective and realize that what happens during the regular season is not connected to the playoffs. I think we all we're all aware of that. Well, yeah, we are. I mean, I guess, like, in some ways – like the 82 games we're about to witness that the Maple Leafs play, they they could be the most irrelevant hockey games we've ever watched in our lifetime. Because as much as you know, every NHL season ultimately comes down to the playoffs, and almost every NHL season is measured by the playoffs. You know, th- this Maple Leaf team, because of the way 
it was you know broken down to the to the studs in the in the early days of the Shanna plan in the in the way it came up from being a 30th place team in a 30 team league to being what it is like the regular season mattered there for a few years. It mattered that they were making progress in the regular season. It mattered that they were, you know, doing what they were doing, that they were becoming a playoff team and they were not only becoming a playoff team, but a perennial playoff team. Those steps were important, but they've gone past those steps now to the point where the only way this regular season will matter, Jim, is if they underachieve to the point where they don't make the playoffs. That's the only way anybody's really going to pay attention. That's the only way it'll be of any consequence because I don't care what they do, Jim. I'm not sure what they could do in the regular season. I don't care how many games in a row they won. I don't care how many points they collect. I don't care if it's a franchise record or a league record. It will still come down to, yes, but can you win four games in the playoffs? It doesn't matter if you win 60 or 62 or whatever the record is. It, it'll be absolutely irrelevant. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting season for that reason. Like, we're about to witness six months of hockey that might not mean very much unless it doesn't go very well, in which case it'll mean an awful lot. Okay, this may be an interesting answer. And the question is, who is the most important player to the Leafs this season? Wow, that's that is a good one. I mean, in in some ways, to me, I I almost might think it's Jack Campbell, uh, because I think goaltending, ah. goaltending to me is has has been a has been an issue. Obviously, when you know when they, how, who who took the brunt of the blame when they failed to make it past the first round uh, against the Bruins and and and. and uh, in the years before this past year, when clearly it wasn't just goaltending that did them in against the Montreal Canadiens, although you know the Game Seven goal that, that Campbell uh, let in was was clearly you know n- not optimal, but Jack Campbell they've got a lot riding on right now, right? He's a value goaltender in the final year of a contract, and he performed you know way beyond expectation last year in something of a fairy tale season for him. But he was also, you know, injured three separate times and and missed time on three separate occasions. And so the question is, can you rely on this guy to be, if not a number one, then a 1A with Peter Mrazek uh, to the point where he's going to have to play a fairly heavy workload of games considering his career has been littered with other instances where he's been, you know, very hard-pressed to stay healthy. I mean, I've talked to quite a few goaltending experts that just say his style, which is kind of a, you know, for lack of a technical term, and and I've heard goaltender coaches use this. They say this is a guy who jumps around the crease a lot. He's very gymnastic in his style, and gymnastic goaltenders – you know, guess what? They're, they're, they're walking groin injuries waiting to happen. They're walking hip injuries waiting to happen. They're walking knee injuries waiting to happen. Um, and, and that's been the track record of Jack Campbell. He's had a hard time staving those things off on a day-to-day basis and month-to-month basis. So I, in some ways, I think, it, it, you know, it might be Jack Campbell because I just think, you know, this is a team we know they, they, they put some pressure on their goaltending. They, they've done that in the past, and, and they've needed goaltenders to be uh, above average for the, them to be successful. And so I do think I can make a case for Jack Campbell among many other players, clearly, because, you know, this is, it's always tough in a, in, a, in a team sport like hockey to say it's on one guy. 
Yeah, no, I agree. In fact, that was my answer as well, just because if he was to deliver the way he did last year in 50 to 55 starts, uh, that would be a major breaking story. And, of course, then you'd you'd deal with the aftermath when it came time to re-sign him. But I, I totally agree with you. Let, let's go back to the fact that this is an 82-game regular season back in, in the divisional setup. And, and what does that mean for a guy like, like Sheldon Keefe, who, who hasn't done that before? Well, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, what does it mean? If you want to spin the sort of the doomsaying story, it's, it's, it means that you just missed your best chance. Like you, you just had it laid out in yeah. front of you with the North Division. It means that you really squandered something in not getting past the Montreal Canadiens in the first round and seeing, you know, taking, taking a swing into the second round with a, with maybe the best pass you'll ever have to getting deep into the playoffs in this era. Uh, what it means now is there's a lot more pressure on this team and on Sheldon Keefe to figure out a way to to make these 82 games vital for his team. And I think that the, this is an interesting paradox, right? Like when you think about, and it's an interesting quandary for a coach like Sheldon Keefe, because the guys that live in this town and the guys who've played in this town for a while, and, and, and many guys on this roster certainly know this town intimately and understand the heartbeat of this city and, and, and the quirks and, 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 uh, the the sort of the the psyche of this city everybody on this roster realizes that what they're going to be judged by everybody in this manager group realizes what they're going to be judged by and the coaching staff too Sheldon Keefe is well aware that nothing his team does in the in the regular season is going to impress anybody and that it's all going to be with the playoffs which brings you to the point of with that said Jim how is the coach do you convince your team that the regular season matters. Like, how do you how do you get guys up for games that aren't going to impress the fan base? How do you get guys up to play every day when you know darn well that you know everybody in town is sitting there going, "Yeah, great, you won tonight, but what's going to happen in mid-April when the playoffs begin?" Uh, I think that's you know it could be a problem for this team that to to sort of and for this coaching staff to sell to this group of players that it's vital that they play their best every night in an 82-game season when we all know that they're not going to be judged by that 82-game season. It's going to be a fascinating run, that's for sure, and, and I guess the, the key to it is is, is perspective. Let, let's switch over to the Jays. Um, I find this team really intriguing, and, and the wild card battle is, is certainly riveted to watch, almost a dead heat with three teams, uh, and, and the Vladdy story is, is fantastic. That, and I just, you know, I said this to Steve Phillips the other day, that if you were to name Vladdy as the MVP of the team, as soon as you did that, five of the names would, would be trumpeted out. You'd, you'd go, well, what about this guy? And the guy that I want to say, what about this this guy is Bo Bichette. What about this yeah. guy? His value to the team is, is very high. No, there's no doubt. I mean, he's you know you, you're right. It's 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 a fascinating team for that very reason. I mean, you can make the case that there's a number of guys who've who've been vital to the success that they've had. I mean, Vlad. Now it's hard to it's hard to argue that Vladdy Guerrero Jr. is not the MVP of this team. I mean, this is a guy on the verge, uh, certainly in the conversation, to win a Triple Crown. That hasn't been done since 2012, and we know Mickey Cabrera did it uh, after it hadn't been done in many, many decades before him. So, uh, you know, there is that. But you're right, Bichette, I mean, there was a moment there this season where you thought he was taking a step back. I guess it was probably in August. Um, but he's he's had a nice resurgence in September, as has the entire club. And yeah, you're right. His 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 defensive acumen, his swagger, uh, his spirit, and obviously his bat have been you know, integral to this team. Um, and it's yeah, you're right. He's he's one of these guys that, in a lot of ways, it, it feel it, as much as 
you know, Guerrero is an outsized character with an outsized personality and a, and obviously outsized stats. Uh, you know, there's been many, many moments in their ascendance as young players to established pros that they are now that you could make the case that this is Bichette's team. And I think there's there's many nights still where where it seems as though he is the beating heart of this ball club. Yeah, I mean it's 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 fascinating to watch. I'm looking for a comparable here, and I, and I think we've talked before about you know you go back into the the mid '80s with the Dominican players and, and the march to the World Series. There's that element there. There's a there's a, a certainly an, an element of, of 2015 with with how they're playing now, and and there are elements from the World Series, Jays. It's sort of when you watch the team now, it's sort of a blend of all that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. A, it is a blend. I mean, you got you right. Like the the like what you know, growing up in the '80s as I did. You know, there was always that place of pride in your heart that the Blue Jays team you were watching, you know, win the AL East, uh, you know, in 1985 for the first time and then, you know, have the disappointments of the late 80s and go on to win uh, the, the back-to-back World Series in 92-93. In you know, the, there was always that place of pride that a lot of that team, the core of that team, uh, was homegrown, right? And, and and to your point, a lot of it was, you know, homegrown in the in the Dominican uh, by by the by the legendary scouting staffs and development staffs that the Blue Jays had in those days that that brought those players to Toronto and turned them into major league players of incredible uh, incredible spirit and and uh, accomplishment, but. So there is that, like the idea that you know, Vlad, the idea that Vladdy's been a guy that you drafted as a 16-year-old and you've brought him up through the ranks, and now uh, at age 22, he's doing stuff that you know very few players in the history of baseball have done at age 22. Uh, you know, the, the, I, the, you love that storyline. You love that in-house storyline of this has been our guy from the get-go. We bet on this guy young, and we're betting on him, uh, you know, forever. Because let's face it, I mean, they're going to have to lock him up long-term. Uh, in the very near future here, although I'm not sure negotiating off of a, of an MVP caliber season like the one he's having is is a great negotiating position for the Toronto Blue Jays, and they might want to they might want to wait a little bit before they but they figure out how much they're going to pay him here. But uh, yeah, there there is that, and then and then to your point about the you know that uh, that mid 2010s team that that broke the longest playoff drought in in all of North American sports, Jim. Yeah, the late the late season resurgence here. There's nothing more thrilling, right, than than a team that looks like it might be dead yeah. or certainly is on life support. And you could say that about these Blue Jays only a couple weeks ago when when it did not look good and the Fangraphs playoff probabilities were in the single digits and it seemed as though the Yankees and Red Sox weren't going to be caught and you heck not never mind the Yankees and Red Sox you were still hanging behind the Oakland A's and the Seattle Mariners in the standings. You know, suddenly you've vaulted forward with this incredible stretch run you've had, and and all you got to do now is just kind of keep doing what you're doing, and which is obviously a tall order because what they've been doing is putting up historic offensive numbers in the month of September. But so you got to believe that the, the, there will be a regression there. But yeah, there's a lot of different elements there that bring back you know a lot of happy memories about a lot of great Blue Jays teams of the past, Jim. And and uh, and to me, there's you know as much as I love the postseason in basketball as much as I love the postseason in in hockey and, and believe the Stanley Cup is you know it, there's an argument to be made that it is the hardest trophy to win in all the North American pro sports because of the physical toll it takes to win 16 games in a hockey playoff you know to me there's there almost there really isn't anything quite like 
the drama of, of a baseball postseason where every pitch matters and every at-bat is crucial, and especially in a one-game playoff, which is what the Blues Jays will be hoping to, to head toward here. Uh, man, I can't. There, like, there is no better drama in sports to me than a than a one game winner take it all baseball uh, moment on, on a fall afternoon. And and I guess Blue Jays fans can only hope that they're about to witness one in the in the coming weeks. Dave, we tried to to pump Bo Bichette's tires, but I want to go back to to Vladdy. Uh, you know this this story. You know his first full season, uh, battling for a triple crown, getting um, you know mentioned as an MVP and a possible MVP, and, and probably only defeated by the composite of Babe Ruth from from you know anything that Babe Ruth yeah. could do, it, and Otani does it all in in one season. Um, th- but this Vladdy story, as a comparable to other great moments in Blue Jay history, where does it stand? Oh man, I mean, I guess it's you're, you're like there's there haven't been many, right? There really haven't. When you look back, I mean, you know, like no, well, obviously no one's won a triple crown. I think that's what you know. And the interesting thing to me is, Jim, I think we I was on uh, the morning show earlier in the week, and we were talking about is there a conversation around the American League MVP? Uh, is is there a case to be made that Vladdy Guerrero Jr. you know can can be in the conversation with Shohei Otani for that award? Because I do believe there's a lot of people who who've just given it to Otani, and I think in in many ways rightly so. But I've I've been kind of surprised. Like there there have been quite a few pundits in the states, and maybe just for the sake of argument, because that's what pundits do. But you know, as much as I understand, there are people in the Blue Jays fan base that would that would love to give it to Vladdy Guerrero Jr. I personally, as a, as somebody who, who likes to think of himself as a neutral observer, I, I have a hard time, you know, reconciling the idea that you can take somebody with triple crown numbers and then compare them to somebody who's, you know, an elite hitter uh, who's been in, you know, the home run race all year and is among the greatest, uh, the best hitters in the American League and then is also a top five pitcher in the American League. I just, I don't see how Vladdy can compare to that. I'm, I'm not sure how Otani loses this thing. And yet the Triple Crown means something to a lot of the, the baseball writers of America who are going to vote on this thing in the end uh, because it's an historic thing. Uh, you know, offensive numbers ultimately trump everything in baseball, it seems, uh, especially in this era where, where the home run uh, reigns supreme. So the home run king, obviously, uh, is going to get some precedence. And I, and I do think there's at least, you know, there are some people south of the border, forget about Toronto, where, where obviously there's a bias toward, you know, you know, thinking about the positives of, of Vladdy Guerrero Jr. S- season, uh, there's there's a lot of people who believe that, that Guerrero will be in the conversation, especially because we've we've been raised in this era. We've certainly we've, we've come to think of the MVP award as an award that should go to somebody whose team is is competitive. You know, you know, in many sports, baseball not not necessarily the case because we've seen guys who've been on teams that aren't particularly good, and, and Mike Trout comes to mind on that very same Angels team as as a guy who's who's obviously been in the MVP conversation on a yearly basis, even though his, he's played a career three playoff games. So, yeah, the, the, you know, the, in other words, Jim, I don't think there's ever been a Blue Jay who's had a season like this. Um, certainly, it was never, you know, obviously, if, especially if. Vladdy can pull off the unthinkable and win a triple crown, and that's the beauty of this. Like he is, he is a singular talent at a singular moment in time, and I'm not sure there's there's anything that really compares to it. 
Uh, let's let's end on golf, and, and uh, we just have this in the last three minutes. Uh, TSN has tweeted that uh, Kepka has confirmed he will play at the Ryder Cup. In a Golf Digest interview, he said he was frustrated by the way this event takes an individual player away from what he's accustomed to doing at a regular event. Well, dude, it's not a regular event. It's it's the Ryder yeah. Cup, and and by the way, Paul Isinger absolutely ripped a layer of skin off him, didn't he? Yeah, look, I mean, in some ways, I think I think that was a little bit hasty for Paul Azinger because when you really break down what what Kepka said, it was pretty reasonable to my view. Like it was, it was essentially him just pointing out, maybe as a way of explaining why the Americans have not been very good in the Ryder Cup, Jim, because of course they've lost you know seven of the last nine Ryder Cups, uh, you know, and and have really had it handed to them, and a lot of those. Uh, a lot of those uh, competitions with Team Europe, all he was pointing out was that this is not a regular week for him, right? In, in other words, when he looks at the way yeah. he plays his best, when he in a major, like he doesn't he doesn't get to do the same things he gets to do when he's playing his best. We know it's an individual sport. He's talking about, hey, I don't get my own physio guy on board. I don't have the same schedule. I don't get the same amount of rest. I don't I don't have the opportunity to do all the things I do to prepare myself when I'm playing for Brooks Kepka Incorporated as when I'm playing for Team USA in a Ryder Cup. That's really what he said. Now, I understand that there's a spirit to what he said that probably didn't thrill Paul Azinger. And, I under, and, and when, especially when you look at the way the Europeans tend to embrace the positives rather than dwell on the negatives of the Ryder Cup, right? These guys, for whatever reason, and I think there's, you know, there's been a lot written on why the Europeans embrace the team aspect of golf more than the the Americans do and there's deep-seated cultural you know implications there but for whatever reason the Europeans do seem to embrace the idea that you know we're in this together uh, this is a, this is a, a brotherhood we're all a lot of these guys have known each other for a long long time and they've been friends for a long long time and competitors for a long long time and, and they seem to just look at Everything on you know, with the glass half full uh, as a Euro- team Europe, whereas the Americans and maybe Kepka's Exhibit A look at the downsides and, and point out, hey, this isn't my regular game. And well, I don't know how much more you need to know about why the Americans haven't been successful than that. But look, this is he's not the first guy that's pointed this stuff out, right? Like Tiger Woods never said it as explicitly yep. as this. But Tiger Woods, you know, made it very clear that team golf was never his thing. And Tiger Woods' career record in the Ryder Cup in terms of the team USA's he's been on is a, a, a startlingly poor one in seven, right? This is a, Tiger Woods start, was the star player on exactly one Ryder Cup winning team and on seven losing teams. And, and so I think that tells you something of the American mentality. I don't think it's just, you know, I don't think it's just Brooks Kepka. That looks at it this way, Jim. I really don't. And I think for Azinger to kind of tear a strip off him, yeah. look, I understand it. I think it was his obligation in some ways to address it. I thought it was a little harsh because I just don't think what Kepka was saying was particularly revolutionary. Dave, well said. Thanks very much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Jim, always a pleasure. Have a great day.